Good morning. It's Saturday the 10th of October and it's World Mental Health Day. World Mental Health Day is an international day for global mental health education, awareness and advocacy against social stigma. This day, each October, thousands of supporters come to celebrate this annual awareness program to bring attention to mental illnesses and its major effects on people's lives worldwide. We'd like to introduce Dr. Renelle Pras-Hughes and she's the head of, clinic, of the clinical unit at the Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Department at Tara Hospital. How are you, Doc? Good morning, Luke. Uh, great to be here. Thank you very much for coming. Um, I think as we discussed, what I really wanted to start with is just looking at mental health as a continuum. We often, when we hear the word Tara and the general public who doesn't work in the context hear the word Tara, there's these kind of stereotypes that people have around very, very ill people. So just if you can just take us through the continuum from mental disorders through to what we will be discussing today, which is mental health. So I think you raised a very valid point, and I think that's the stigma attached to a mental illness or mental disorders. And I think that sometimes um, prevent um, children and families and caregivers of seeking help because they are concerned that if they had to come to a, a unit like Tara, then then people might um, judge them or frown upon them, and which is, is quite detrimental then to the child in the long run because I think what we know is that if we get help early, and we are able to support the families and the caregivers, then that can often have a very positive outcome. So, I mean, in our clinic, we definitely see a variety of, um, of patients, of families, of parents, and some of them are just struggling and they just need some support. So I think it is important to know that all of us go through difficult times and all of us um, often need some extra additional support, and that doesn't mean that there's something really wrong with you. And I think that is something that we have to sort of get out of our minds that, um, you know, it is something significantly wrong or we did something really wrong. Um, so I think that's quite an important um, point that you raised. And then if, if we look at what you do see, the reasons for referral, particularly for children, seem to be largely around behavior and mood. And the, the treatment for that varies, but it's not just about, because there's a lot of controversy also around just medicating children, right? So as a program, you have a more holistic approach to dealing with the moving uh, towards mental health for children and their families. Can you just take us through what that looks like? So I think... Um Definitely, um, especially now in the COVID time and lockdown time, and um, one of our, the patients that get referred probably the quickest are the, the children that struggle with behavioral problems. And I think ironically, that's often um, the, the one area where we want to work more with the caregivers or the parents because um, it's not something that we can fix, which is often um, what people want us to do. So it's much more around how do you support um, the parents, the caregivers, look at the environment and what changes we can make. Um, I think we do get referrals from, um, so that is probably the most common, so children struggling um, with concentration, impulsivity, hyperactivity, so um, I think because the teachers are struggling with them in the classroom, behavior because the families are struggling, and then we also see a lot of adolescents who is um, self-harming and suicidal. I think because these are also the kind of children that in a school context make people quite anxious and worried and then they get referred quite quickly. I think the kids that we worried about is the ones that probably don't get referred and those are the children with anxiety disorders or presenting with anxiety. And I think it's because I think as a society we are all 
probably got the sort of a, a baseline of anxiousness or anxiety. And I think people just want you to get on with it and not show any weakness. So, Renelle, we've come through and we're still in a very, very difficult time in terms of COVID. So we were all in a system where we'd get up in the morning and the parents would get the children ready and drop them off at school. And for a large part of the day, they'd, they'd be the teacher's problem and then fetch the child. And then everything changed in that families were together in very close proximity, probably more so than, than ever before in their lives. What impact has, and I think there are positive and negative impacts of the fact that the family unit has spent a hell of a lot more time together this year than any other? So I think, again, we have to acknowledge um, that different families are in very different circumstances. And I think that is something that lots of people that were quite critical of decisions made by government and other um, stakeholders did not keep in mind. So I think if you are a family that lives in a, a big house with a big garden and you've got resources um, and you've got um, you know everything set up that your children can easily do online schooling and your schools are set up that they have everything in place and you probably even have someone helping the children, then I think most of these people experience this as quite a positive time where they really um, had time to bond and you know do things together. I think the challenge comes in with the, the, the families that really do not have those resources. I mean, I've got several children who has not had one day of school this year. Um, where school was the one supportive place for the child, the one place where the child was feeling safe. Um, so I, I think it's a difficult question, and I think the people that really struggled, and I think Luke can um, attest to that, is the, the kids that probably struggled with behavioral problems and um, there were some relational difficulties within the family system already because they really did not have the support that they needed. And then um, a lot of the resources that they usually have access to, for example, like Luke's program, like Fight With Insight, those programs were not able to support. So I think people had a very different experience. I couldn't agree with you more. And um, you're quite right in terms of depending on what your situation was, that also determined what your experience was. I think uh, uh, that that which came to light was also around being locked up with your abuser and mm. the pressures of COVID have been huge on everybody um, economically and emotionally and in a lot of instances being locked up with your abuser who was even under more pressure than they normally were. I think Luke you can also speak to this has been um, terribly detrimental to so many women and children um, during the time of COVID. Look, I think that what what we have noticed that there's two two broad things happening. The first is that if the family, as Renella said, if the family was already a bit fractured and a little bit struggling, that the cracks really showed. But on the other hand, there was a level at which families also provided a lot of protection to children from other kinds of abuse, interestingly, that went down. So there, there was a, a real showing up of the, the kind of cracks in society. If the family was already fragile, the cracks showed much more. And if there was a level of internal strength where the families could actually um, sort of mobilize themselves, they did a very good job. And children, in fact, did very well, some of them at home, um, whereas others where the family structure was struggling, they struggled. So I just want to throw that back to Renelle because I think that what we tend to do is we have identified patients. So in a situation, like we mentioned, you've got a child at school who's really battling. And what we, what we seem to not understand is that children's play and their behavior is their language and how they communicate. 
and very often we don't listen to that and the children have in many ways kind of borne the brunt of the fact that they are seen as the problem as opposed to being a almost like a pivot in a problematic system so how do we address that with parents so i think um I think the one thing to think about a child whenever a child present is, and I think you you said that, is that the um, behavior is always a way of communicating. So I think what we are trying to um, get parents and adults to do is how can we support the child to communicate in a way that we can understand what they want from us so that we can also respond to them. Because I think often if we speak to the children, we, we're trying to let them understand that if you communicate through behavior or through um, self-harm or anything else, you often feel quite misunderstood because people are not able um, to assist you. So... I think the important part is that we always have to think of a child within a context, different contexts, and we always think of them individually, with their friends, um, with their family, with, in the school. And I think it is around having conversations with parents and making them aware. So uh, one of our interventions that we often um, recommend is a family therapy. Because I think family th therapy is the one place where, with the facilitation of a therapist, you're able to um, allow communication within the family in a safe um, space. Because I think sometimes we are quite um, scared or parents are quite scared to say some things or children because they're not sure what um, the reaction would be. But this is usually a safe space. And all you really so people often in a family or any system is quite fixed in their roles. And I think you can often see that even if children go back, you know, even adult children go back into their family homes and their family, they sort of go back into that role again. And sometimes you just need a small shift. And that small shift will then obviously um, impact on the old family system. And I think what we often find at the moment is that um, families are struggling with the family sort of um, the roles. So I think we need to figure out a way that parents go back into the role of a parent so and that they work on that they're on the same page but and children are children because I think lots of children have too much power within the family system and and ironically I think it is quite nice for a child to have power but it often makes them feel very unsafe and if you have too much power in your family you can't trust that those adults will be there when you need them so some of the behavior might be a way of trying to test um, and to see where the limits are so i think this is often about conversations and um, the kind of therapies and parent counseling where we're trying to make people aware of each other how do we improve communication and maybe that's one of the benefits um, in the COVID time for families who were able to do that so i think what we know um, is that um, people were very busy and people probably are very busy but things like family meals are really essential and I think it's something that sort of um, got lost um, over the years and people are sitting with their phones or watching TV and if we can just go back to those basics even if it's not every evening to try and encourage um, spaces safe spaces where we can communicate I think those kind of things are so valuable um, so it is about helping families to connect again and being together. I don't know if that answers no. the question or that, no, that helps with the discussion. Yeah, no, it absolutely does. And I think that the one thing that you mentioned um, sort of in that conversation is the fact that children need to recognize that they have agency, 
but adults need to still take responsibility in some instances for facilitating access to that agency. I know you and I had many discussions over COVID about the inability to access, for example, social work services, medical services, because children in and of themselves really struggle to access the state structures and they really need adults to facilitate that for them rather than the adults feeling like if they presented for example to you that they have for example failed as parents so how do we assist with that balance with adults taking responsibility for the agency children need to have while allowing children agency but making them feel safe and not making them feel completely responsible so I think on a very, like, in a, what we ideally want, and I'm talking about a functional family, is you want um, parents who are um, authoritative. So basically you want parents who is um, very much um, clear in the expectations of a child. There's um, rules, there's structure, everyone is aware of it, but they're very much um, engaged with their child. So they know their child, they're able to, they they warm, they're high in warmth, and basically these kind of parents are able to negotiate. So I do think that the child knows what the limits are within which the, the um discussions and negotiations in a way can happen but the child also has a say so the child has um is value the opinion is valued um an example might be that the parents say you can go out till eight and the child explains why they can go out till 10 and they come to a discussion that the child might be might have to be back at nine as long as i can trust you so so it is about not a parent saying this is the answer or a child says i will stay out till that time but how do we get to a point where we can talk about it discuss it um, have a negotiation. So that's more in a functional family. I think what, what I want um, to highlight is that when we speak to children or when, we, when things happen to children and there's consequences, it is very important for the child to know that they had a choice. And that choice has a consequence. So, so an example would be in our ward, for example, if a child would misbehave or um, be quite disrespectful, one of the nursing staff or one of our team might say to the child, if you choose to continue this behavior, you choose not to join the others for swimming, which is very different to you will not go and swim. Because the child's experience is then that, you know, the world is unfair, the world is negative, everything is just happening to me. But just rephrasing that allowed the child to understand that even though your circumstances are difficult, within those circumstances, you had a choice. You had a choice to access help. You had a choice to um, respond in a certain way. You And those choices have consequences because I think we need um, parents and children to be able to take responsibility for, for their actions. Um, and, and I think that is essential. So I think, Renal, going back to what you said earlier about the family rituals, so having dinner together as a family where there is not in front of the TV and there are no phones allowed. So it's, it's about engaging with your children and then the languaging that, that you choose. So often we don't hear our children because we are rushing between fetching them from school and getting them to swimming, whereas in a settled environment where there are no distractions such as a family dinner, we're opening conversations and we're truly engaging with our children. Yeah, so, so I mean, I think the one thing that came out from this, this period is the importance of social connectedness. I mean, I think it's one of those things that people just suddenly realize, and I think most people really struggled when they weren't able to access their social support groups. And, and I think we all saw that suddenly people are having Zoom calls with family across the whole world and, and making an effort to, to have these conversations. And I think it's so important for us as adults, for children, to belong. 
And I think this is why what we've seen is that in communities where the there is something that's pulling people together. There's a kind of a, a same values or a same interest. Those kind of things really um, support communities, um, schools, families. So I think that is important in terms of those family rituals. I think the one thing that we often don't um, value as parents is that just to be there. We don't have to fix it for our children. We have to just be present. And show up. And show up. Mm-hmm. And And I think that sometimes it is about just allowing yourself to know that you're not supposed to fix it because by fixing it we sometimes don't we undermine their feeling we don't appreciate their feeling because we want to go in and make it better but you're not just sitting with that um what they're bringing and also to be honest um and to say this is what's going on either in our family or in your life yeah. i can't as you said fix it but i certainly can be here with you as we find the best solution together so it, it, it speaks to all of that. I, I mean, that I think is very important because children know. Children know when things are difficult. I mean, children are aware. So, example, you'll have parents who's maybe um, on the brink of a divorce or financial difficulties. And the assumption is that the children don't know. The children don't know at all. The problem is if we can't talk about it, if we can't name it and discuss it, it becomes a much bigger thing in the child's mind. So I'm not saying I have inappropriate conversations with the child. There's a, there's a level of what you can disclose and other level that's, um, is more adults. But we have to name it. Because if we name it, we make it that it's not such a big thing and it's not as scary. As scary. Yeah. Imagine how scary it must be if we don't have any knowledge. We make the problem so much bigger. And I think also for children, if you're speaking about divorce, very often they think, my thing is their fault. Mm. Or if they did something better, and you spoke earlier about children's behavior and that they tell us how they're feeling through their behavior. Mm. Um, I'd just like to ask, in, in terms of parents and um you, you, you use the phrase, and I like it as well, that if your cup isn't full, it's very difficult to then give everything to your children. First, you don't have to give everything all the time because we also are humans. There's a lovely meme where it shows a cell phone, and the minute your cell phone's down to 20%, you run around the house and you plug it in and it can't go down to 20%. But it's not like that for, for parents where we get down to 20%, and we certainly don't run around looking for a recharge. I mean, another example was, I mean, I think so many times over the last um, few months, there's been um, people that, you know, because we were at work the whole time, I think you often had to go onto meetings online or discussions or, and often people would join and go, oh, I'm having such a difficult day, you know, I really nearly didn't join. And, And at the end, everyone would say, you know, I'm so relieved or I'm so glad I took this little bit of time out because I can go back and I can go face things. And I think... Often our parents are struggling to give themselves permission to look after themselves. And the truth is that if you allow yourself um, that self-care, that coffee with a friend, um, you know, to go and do your exercise or, or spend time on your hobby, you are so much more able to be present for your child. And, and, I, and I think that is just, it's one of those things that spending some time make you much more efficient. Um, so that is important um, to do that, yeah. The thing that's, that keeps coming across as a theme is that mental health requires connection and that there's a level at which the parent, right from the beginning of the child's life, in fact, preconception attachment almost, where the parent who has thought about becoming pregnant, has thought about their child, has thought about their pregnancy, 
recognizes that post-pregnancy they might struggle, but that in order for a child to develop into an emotionally healthy person, the connection with the adult that is raising them is central, so the, the attachment figure. And then from that, what for you are the cornerstones of mental health as the most basic things we all need to do to make sure we maintain our mental health? <laughs> that's, a, that's a tricky one um, because I think, okay, first of all, I think it's about the social connections. I think the social connections are really important. And then ironically, I think it is about all the things that people always tell us to look after. So how do we look after um, our health, you know, healthy eating, sleep enough, um, doing your exercise, um, all of those things. But I think the other thing that's very important is to acknowledge when you're needing support. So I think we are so scared of being judged um, or, or being seen that we're not coping, that we often feel that we need to be strong. So looking after your mental health is also having an awareness. So having an awareness of when you need some time out and to recharge, but um, also being aware of your feelings and your emotions and being able to manage those. So, so I think it is a tricky one, but it is, it is about healthy, healthy lifestyles. But I think and it's one thing that I often struggle with is that you often feel that you become quite judgmental of yourself, you know, like you're supposed to be doing all of these things. And it isn't about that. It's about finding the balance in that moment. So maybe on that day, you're not going to be able to do your exercise and do this and this and this, but you're prioritizing something today and do that with all of you be in that moment and not thinking of the next moment because I think that is important. So, so I don't know if I, I mean, like, I think it's about social connections, um, being in the moment, being in awe of moments, and really trying to prioritize things for that day and not judge, judgmental of yourself or others. <laughs> I think that's a, fant a fantastic conclusion to the talk because it's really about being kind to yourself mm. and recognizing that the, the kindness you show to yourself somewhere says that I don't have to be perfect, I don't have to do all of these things, and the humanness around the fact that I'm not coping but I know how to manage, then will be a, a model that children can draw from because they can see that we sometimes fail, we are not perfect, but that you can recover from it, it's not catastrophic. Mm. Renal, this has been such an important discussion, I think as a parent, and um, someone who puts a huge amount of pressure on myself. It's just about what can I do today. Just in closing, um, there's a fabulous Facebook group called The Village where there are so many parents on it and very often the question around good mental health and where children are suffering from anxiety or have had a terribly traumatic experience. Where can parents reach out? Where would you go? Would you start with your GP? Would you look for a psychologist? If you, firstly, I think it's great that you've identified that you do need help, but where, where do you start? So that also again depends on where you are and your resources available. Um, I think there's a lot of um, online um, resources. Um, so SADAC is one of them. Um, Lifeline is one of them. I think some people get a lot of support through church um, or through groups that they belong to. Um, I, I do think that if you phone one of the hospitals or the clinics with, with mental um, health services, they would be able to guide you. Um, but I think that's a difficult question to just answer answer like that. Yeah. Thank you. But I think it's it's important and it gets back to social connectedness. Places like church, mm. where, you know, where, where, where your people are, your tribe is, which is something that you also mentioned to us earlier. 
And maybe just to go back to that, I think sometimes parents feel that if something happened to the family, the child must get help because something happened. And I think that what we've realized is that it's often much more valuable for a parent to be there for a child. So I think we mustn't underestimate how much we can support each other. So we mustn't just outsource it. <laughs> True. Renal, thank you so very much for your time. Thanks, Doc. World Mental Health Day. And I think if anything, just be kind to yourself and be kind to others. Okay, so just to remind you, our next podcast is on International Day of the Girl Child on the 11th of October, and we are in conversation with Jennifer Matibi, one of my heroes, because she's one of the young ladies from our Fight with Insight program. So please subscribe today so that you don't miss the conversation. And all of the details that Renelle gave us for SADAC and for Lifeline, we are going to put up on our Facebook page. Um, do have a look at Society Superheroes, and that's on Facebook. Have a great day.